Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thanks, as always, to all of you out there who are listening uh, to the show today. I want to get right to introducing the panel and start discussing the topics at hand. We're joined, as we usually are on Fridays, by the AJC legend Jim Galloway. Jim Galloway, veteran political uh, reporter and then columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And Jim... As I've said on this show before, and as you well know, when we began Political Rewind as a a one-day-a-week show some nine years ago, you were, in fact, patient zero. You were the first person to be on the show with me, and here we are nine years later, and you know how much I've loved our conversations. Jim? Thank you very much, and the title is Former AJC Legend. Oh, uh, but, oh okay. <laughs> but 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 let me just say, Bill. You know, it's it's on uh, uh, when when politicians find themselves in a difficult situation, often they are advised simply to declare victory and move on. And I think nine years of <laughs> of, of truth telling uh, constitutes a victory. So so <laughs> yeah, we're, congratulations I, there. Thank you. I appreciate that, Jim. I have to next introduce, with a bit of embarrassment, Anthony Michael Kreis, a professor of law at uh, George State University. Anthony, I have no idea why in the uh, opening, the headlines or billboards, as NPR calls them, I misnamed you as Andrew. You are definitely Anthony Michael Kreis, and my apologies to you. Welcome to the show, Anthony. Good morning, Bill. It's, it's always it's always great to be here, and uh, no worries about that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Tanya Washington is with us from Georgia State University as well. Hi, Tanya. How are you doing today? I, I am wonderful, and I just want to echo um, James' statement. This nine years on the air, telling truth, speaking truth to power is an unmitigated victory. So congratulations, <laughs> and thanks for having us. Thank you. I, I appreciate your uh, comments. And Fred Smith. Uh, Fred, you've been on the show for a very long uh, time, too. Tanya and Anthony joined us a bit more recently than you did. But Fred, professor, professor of constitutional law at Emory University. Fred, we've turned to you many times over the years to talk to us about constitutional law. And we're going to talk about it again today when we get to where the Supreme Court stands in some crucial cases. Hi. Well, it's an absolute honor to be here. It always is, but it is especially an honor to be here today. Uh, and I want to say to Jim, Jim, once a legend, always a legend. <laughs> That's, that is true of you, and that is very much true of Bill. Well, Fred, we're not going to start with the Supreme Court because the cases we've been all eagerly anticipating still have not been released. So I do want to talk about uh, them in a few minutes and what the implications of a couple of these cases are. But uh, but I, I would turn to you. You uh, clerked 
for Sonia Sotomayor at the uh, Supreme Court. So I thought it would be interesting to get your take on how they stage these final rulings. For instance, Dobbs last year, which shook up the entire world by overturning Roe v. Wade. Now we wait to hear about LGBTQ rights as opposed to free speech. We wait to hear about affirmative action in college admissions. And we're at the end of the month. How is this staging? Does it take place? Sure. So some people don't believe me when I say this, but it's the absolute truth. They release the opinions when they're ready. (laughs) Um, And they try to make sure that they get everything out by the end of June. Uh, And so very, very rarely will it go into July. So they have this self-imposed deadline that they want everything out by the end of June. The reason why sometimes things take longer is because when they're separate writings, um, Someone might have, you know, what they think is their perfect majority opinion, but then the concurrence comes or the dissent comes um, or, you know, someone is saying, well, in order to get my vote, actually, I need you to change this. And someone else pushes back against that. And, and so you're you're really trying to kind of make sure that everyone who is signing on to that opinion is happy and that you've been res- appropriately responsive uh, to things that are in the concurrences and the dissents. And in rare occasions, sometimes someone will write a concurrence or a dissent that ultimately becomes the majority because when people read it, uh, they say, actually, that's the one I want to join. I'm now persuaded, right? And that kind of can set things back. Um, so separate writings um, and uh, and just really kind of making sure that every person who's in an opinion uh, feels comfortable with everything that's in it. Sometimes that just takes a while. When all of that happens, then they release. Um, the reason, though, why you see these big ones at the very end of June is because that's their self-imposed deadline. Uh, and so they kind of just have to <laughs> they have to get it out there. Um, and so today and tomorrow, you know, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll hopefully see, you know, 303 creative, the student loan case uh, and affirmative action. Mm-hmm. All right. We're going to get to those uh, in a little while on the show, but um, uh, let's do this, Jim. I, I'd like to talk about some uh, uh, state uh, issues for a few minutes and start with you on this. We now know that yesterday, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger uh, was interviewed by federal prosecutors who are part of Jack Smith's team, the special counsel's team, uh, that have had two mandates, one which they've already um, taken action on, uh, indicting Donald Trump for uh, his mishandling of uh, presidential documents. But the other part of their mandate, of course, has been to investigate efforts to overturn the 2020 election and to determine whether there was actual criminal wrongdoing there. Ravensburger is an important person uh, to the feds since he's the one who took the infamous phone call in which Donald Trump says, find me enough votes to win Georgia. Jim? Right. We don't we don't have any details of what he was asked or, or uh, what his replies were. Uh, it, but that kind of that, that, that I think that hardly needs to be guessed at uh, given given the given the extent of that that tape I found that one of the more more uh, illuminating things out of the AJC piece was was that the the federal investigators had also ta- talked to the the state director of elections uh, who is uh, now with the public safety uh, training council I believe but uh, so 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 there are more people uh, on their list then Ravensburger, and I would, uh, for instance, I would assume uh, 
Uh, I, I don't know for a fact, but I would assume that uh, that conversation between Mark Meadows and uh, uh, and uh, the uh, the inspection that he was doing in Cobb County uh, probably came up. Uh, so it's it's it, it, it's it's a it's a very interesting intersection. Uh, we were talking about Venn diagrams before we went on the on the air, but it's a it's 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 a, it's a it's a a, a, a wonderful in, a kind of indication of the intersection that's building between uh, the federal investigation and Fawny Willis's. I think that's a, a good point, uh, Anthony. We know, of course, that uh, Ravensburger's already been called before the grand jury that Fawny Willis, the special grand jury that she had impaneled uh, uh, over a year ago now. By the way, we should also say. Anthony, that while Raffensperger has been interviewed by the feds, uh, that would be a precursor to the potential that they will call him before the grand jury, right? Yeah, so it it certainly seems to be the case that Jack Smith's investigation, at least on the January 6th front, is picking up some steam. Um, And and I think it's important, too, to realize that in the, the grand jury proceedings in D.C., Uh, There's been a lot of focus on the Nevada fake electors and a lot of the mischief that was happening there. And so you can draw your own conclusions, but there's certainly a parallel, right, um, between the the kinds of things that are happening in D.C. in the the focus on Nevada and some of the other electors, fake electors, and some of the questions that the investigators surely asked Brad Raffensperger about. Um, here, in addition to not just the infamous phone call, but whatever other contacts uh, the Trump campaign had with his office, which we know um, there were multiple attempts to to connect Raffensperger and Trump um, before that, that phone call actually happened. We know that there was some contact between Trump and and the senior investigator in the office. So there, there's certainly a lot more there. And there's a there's a lot of information that I, I'm sure that they wanted to to draw out from him and also compare to some of these other states so that maybe a broader narrative might be crafted as to you know the the you know 40,000 foot level view of the attempt or alleged attempt to defraud the United States and overthrow the election. Tanya, um, of course the Raffensperger uh, people and uh, the feds are not going to talk publicly about what happened in this interview, but the Secretary of State's office did put out a statement in which it said, quote, Georgia is a national leader in election security, integrity, and and uh, access. Failed candidates, failed candidates, I love that expression, and their enablers have peddled false narratives about our elections for personal gain for a long time, and the voters of Georgia aren't buying it. Tanya? Yeah, and I think that kind of characterizes um, Raffensperger's perspective on the heroic role um, that he played in making sure that Georgia's uh, elections and results remained unimpeded by the efforts of those wrongdoers, bad actors, et cetera. And um, Fani has made clear that she's moving forward and she is not going to change course based on um, the federal indictment. So we shall see soon enough. Um, Jim, we should also point out that uh, uh, as this case looking at the efforts to overturn the election moves forward in the special counsel's office, uh, Rudy Giuliani uh, came in in and gave voluntary 
testimony, his lawyers emphasized that, about whatever his role might have been in perpetrating uh, these uh, notions of fraud in the election, which, of course, we know aren't true. But that also suggests, I think, that uh, Jack Smith and his team are moving ever closer to making some decisions about whether indictments are coming. Yeah, and, and and it's not clear. Maybe somebody on the panel here has, has more information on that. I'm not sure. Was was Giuliani under oath at that point? Uh, it, and, and I'm not sure. It, was it before a grand jury? I don't think it was. No, no. He was interviewed. Uh, we don't know whether he was under oath, but it, but the stories report he was interviewed by federal prosecutors in New York City. Um, and uh, it was called an, essentially an amicable uh, conversation. So, uh, Fred, we don't know precisely what that was about, but we do know that Rudy Giuliani was one of the people who seemed to have some involvement in this uh, scheme to identify fake electors, alternate electors, in uh, swing states like Georgia to have them available uh, in the event that Mike Pence went along with the plan to not recognize the Biden electors to step in and elect Trump president of the United States, Fred. Yeah, so um, this very clearly overlaps quite a bit with the investigation happening right here in Fulton County. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see the degree of cooperation uh, going forward, which one will kind of take precedent, right? I mean, obviously, the Fulton County investigation has been uh, going at a at a faster uh, clip, <laughs> not to say fast clip, but faster clip uh, than this federal investigation. Um, on the question of whether um, Giuliani was, was under oath, even if he wasn't, um, m- making intentionally false statements to a federal agent um, is um, uh, is a crime, right? Um, so. And so even though it wouldn't necessarily be a perjury as such, uh, it would nonetheless violate the law. Thank you for that. Jim? Yeah, yeah. I think we, we, we would be remiss if we did not mention that Giuliani was at that, that famous December 2021 state Senate hearing uh, in which he uh, uh, basically accused two Fulton County uh, election workers of 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 uh, of stealing and, and maneuvering to 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 uh, to uh, falsify votes uh, and and basically which was the start of uh, of making their their lives hell on earth. Yeah, uh, Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman, her mother, uh, uh, who testified before the January sixth committee, and I think uh, became uh, uh, well known nationally because of the horrible horrible way in which their lives were upended when they were falsely accused of somehow trying to uh, put fake ballots into the Fulton County election um, system. Um, Anthony, as long as we're talking about uh, the um, election, um, I want to go to the uh, the, uh, case that the Supreme Court has ruled on that everyone was looking forward to seeing, independent state legislature theory, which posited, Republicans posited, that... um, State courts should have no role in adjudicating matters when a legislature decides things about federal elections, so congressional uh, lines, for example. And, and Anthony, I mentioned this on the show yesterday, and of course the court said, no, we're not buying that, uh, uh, th- 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 that is not going to be the law of the land. And I, I mentioned on the show yesterday that 
had the court gone the other way, had this been in this independent state legislature theory been in place in 2020, it would be possible, it would be likely uh, in Georgia that the state legislators, the Republicans who'd been urged by Trump to not accept uh, the victory of Joe Biden, could have on their own uh, decided to, in fact, give the state to uh, Trump to get electors who were Trump electors in place. And the state courts would have had no right to intervene. Now, that's hypothetical. It didn't happen. And it's not going to happen thanks to the ruling of the courts in the future. Yes, Anthony? Well, I, I think there's a couple of different uh, layers to that, right? So on, on the one hand, it's true that there, the argument was that there would be no role for state courts to intervene and impose state constitutional law restrictions um, in these federal elections. Now, in 2020, though, right, that, that, does, that would not mean um, that Governor Kemp could not veto an attempt to overturn the election, right? So if the if the legislature uh, brought themselves back in, into special session and attempted to undo things, um, the procedural safeguards uh, of, of the gubernatorial veto would still be in place. And even Justice Thomas acknowledged that um, in his dissent uh, in the case. Um, but I think it's also important that the other constitutional principles would also attach, right? That there's there's a real question about equal protection and and what implications there would be for for the equal protection of the laws by just reversing an election um you know there are other federal statutory laws that would come into play so i i don't think it would be the case that the legislature could just run roughshod over whatever the the will of the public was as expressed in the election on the other hand that is that was the argument right that that many folks including uh, Rudy Giuliani, John Eastman, people who are testifying here in December 2020 before the, the special committee in the Senate, uh, they were arguing that. So, um, you know, I, I think that, again, the, the 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 theory, the doctrine as presented to the Supreme Court had many layers. It could have gone in many different directions. I think there were other safeguards that would have been in place, but it certainly was, in my view, a very dangerous theory, theory that could that could have overly empowered a legislature um, to, to just ignore the will of the people or to at least avoid some of the regular constitutional processes that we've come to understand to be part of how state constitutionalism works how law works uh, more broadly. Tanya? Yeah, I think what's important about this decision is it kind of reinforces the idea that our system of government is characterized by a system of checks and balances um, at the state level and at the federal level. And um, I, I think that is an important feature of our democracy. And I was very pleased um, with with the decision because I think it could have had disastrous consequences for the upcoming uh, presidential election, given all of the changes that legislatures across the United States have made since the last presidential election. Fred, we should also point out, though, that um, even in his uh, uh, writing of the majority opinion, uh, the chief justice did, in fact, leave room for federal courts to have a deeper involvement in what happens in with state legislatures, right? Sure, right. So generally speaking, I think that when uh, when lines are being drawn by state legislatures and generally when these kind of 
very partisan political actors um, are uh, are you know in control of our elections. It's something we tolerate to some extent, but when they violate the law, right? We want someone. We want courts to be able to say so, right? And so the United States Supreme Court affirmed that state courts continue to have their ability to say so. But they also affirm their own ability as federal courts um, if they see a state kind of will go way over the line, right? Um, and uh, and so kind of they sort of left that for another day. So they they kind of preserved the state supreme court's ability to interpret their own state law, um, but they also reserved their role uh, in interpreting um, federal law. Um, and well, although, of course, okay. no, no, finish. I just, I just, I mean, obviously, today, these days, judges uh, aren't the most popular. The Supreme Court isn't the most popular, um, but, uh, but neither, <laughs> neither are legislatures uh, when it comes to to their role uh, in in undermining democracy as well, right? And so, um, but but they but they preserved, um, they they tried to make sure that each lane was properly preserved. So, so Anthony, if I got it right, an example of what Fred's talking about is that another ruling of the Supreme Court this session was in, in the case of Alabama's redistricting, in which Alabama failed to draw a second congressional uh, uh, district that would have had a majority black voters in it. And, it was, and the Supreme Court said it was incorrectly drawn, and they had to go back and redo it. So there is an example of the federal court, I think, the ultimate federal court stepping in in a positive way to uh, remedy what was a uh, a situation that disenfranchised some black voters. Yes, I think the Supreme Court has pretty much winnowed away at, at the Voting Rights Act so much um, that yes, the Alabama case I think for liberals was was a real victory. But at the same time, um, you know, there's not much left of the Voting Rights Act left after the Roberts Court has, you know, systematically dismantled it and, uh, you know, chipped away at it for years. Um, but but I do think that there are, you know, important principles here. One is that um, a lot of this really is up to Congress, right? This is this is we have a very oftentimes is particularly in June because of the the nature of the Supreme Court calendar. We have a jurocentric view of the world, right? We think about courts as being central to safeguarding democratic rights, but it is the Voting Rights Act, a a, pa a, a law passed by Congress. That, that required the outcome in the Alabama case. In terms of partisan gerrymandering, again, a lot of the focus has been on state Supreme Courts, and many state Supreme Courts have heard these cases, and, and they're important institutions, to be sure. But Congress could come back and pass a law that bans partisan gerrymandering in congressional districts. So, so I, I do think it's important to right to see where see where the victories are for folks who, who see them as victories and savor them, and that's great. But to also to, to look at this in a more kind of, I think, 40,000 foot level view of, of how over time these rights have been eroded and chipped away at. And at the same time, also understand that courts aren't the end all be all, that there is a role for the legislative process to play out here as well. Yeah, when the story of this era is written uh, and we try to understand why we have come to the brink uh, when it comes to democracy in the United States. Um, the Supreme Court had been placing itself in a position, uh, and it still may be, but certainly had been placing itself in a position where uh, it would have uh, had a very uh, unsavory 
uh, role and how that story was told. Similarly to how when we think about Reconstruction, we think about this, the United States Supreme Court's implication uh, in the end of Reconstruction. And, and those are for the very reasons that Anthony said, um, for the dismantling of Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, um, for allowing partisan gerrymandering uh, to go forward uh, un, uh, un, unobstructed, um, and even all the way back to Citizens United. Um, and so the Roberts Court really had kind of really been on this trajectory um, in, the, in, the, in the light of history uh, of being on a really unsavory path. Um, I think that this term, um, they complicated that story uh, and may have redeemed themselves a bit. I thank you for that. Jim, before we get to a break, uh, you and I go back, well, to a day and we were as reporters when um, before the Supreme Court nullified preclearance of, uh, of uh, the way in which a, a map in a given state was drawn by in bipartisan uh, uh, actors, drawing lines in their favor, we remember how we would uh, we would wait uh, to get rulings from the courts on whether or not a given map in Georgia got preclearance from the Department of Justice as being uh, fair and representative of the population. The court threw out preclearance, we know. Um, as uh, Fred pointed out, um, it's still possible. The court says partisan gerrymandering um, is uh, perfectly uh, fine, which does can allow at times for uh, drawing lines that there are some questions as to whether they are representative of all people. Um, it, it, but racial gerrymandering, uh, the court stays away from. So, Jim, we've watched this as journalists change dramatically uh, in the Roberts Court. Right, right. I mean, it, there was a time when uh, uh, the Justice Department had a a very a, a very uh, robust civil rights uh, division, and who ran that division was 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 extremely important. Uh, uh, it, just one 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 thing about the the Voting Rights Act sixty five is is that all challenges, all these pre clearance challenges, they were run through the, the through the D.C. courts. Because mm -hmm. the people of the day didn't trust the federal judges on the ground in in the deep south. All right, let's do this. Uh, we've begun moving towards Supreme Court, so let's keep going on in that direction when we come back. But I also want to talk about this feud that seems to be growing between John Ossoff and Brian Kemp over who ought to get credit for Georgia becoming such a major player in the world of alternative energy and electric vehicles. We'll do that more after these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Uh, Tanya Washington, Fred Smith, Anthony Michael Christ, and Jim Galloway join us for our show. We're going to talk, since we have three uh, professors of law on the show today, three who I admire enormously and I'm glad are with us, and my partner Jim Galloway, uh, former AJC political columnist, all with us today. 
Um, let's look at the cases that we imagine are going to be released by the court over the period, say, the next 48 hours as they come to the end of June. Um, Tanya, the, uh, the, one of the most important, of course, has to do with using race as a criteria in college admissions. Um, and uh, the case comes from the University of North Carolina, a public institution, and Harvard, which is interesting, I think, in and of itself. We're talking about both public and private universities. And I want to read you just a, a paragraph, the lead graph, from a New York Times report on uh, the day the court heard arguments in this case and what those arguments and the way the justices react, reacted to them seemed to perhaps uh, hint at what was going to come. This is Adam Liptak's piece. The Supreme Court on Monday appeared ready to rule that the race-conscious admissions programs at Harvard and the University of North Carolina were unlawful based on questioning over five hours of vigorous and sometimes testy arguments, a move that would overrule decades of precedence. Uh, Tanya, this is a very important case, and it's one that you all, as professors at universities, have got to be watching very closely. Absolutely. Um, and it's two cases. Um, one, as you said, North Carolina will focus on um, public universities and Harvard on private institutions. And it's an area of research um, that has been kind of the focus of my scholarship for the past 20 years. I worked, did some work on the Michigan versus Grutter case out of um, Michigan, University of Michigan, where the court embraced the use of race in service of uh, diversity, which is one aspect of educational diversity. Um, and I, I do believe that the court is poised, not just based on the oral arguments that you referenced in the, in the passage you read, but also just based on the opinions um, since the Grutter decision in 2003 up until now, uh, that many on the court and a majority of the court is poised to invalidate the continued use of race. And I'm concerned as a professor um, in terms of what that means for what my classrooms look like. Um, if you don't have black and brown um, and indigenous undergraduate students, you don't have black and brown and indigenous um, law students, graduate students, engineers, lawyers, judges, teachers, dentists, doctors, so you could wipe out, uh, you know, an entire professional class of people. And um, I think that would be devastating for our society. Fred, I want to bring you and Anthony in, but let me read you just a couple of the comments from justices on the day these cases were heard. Um, not surprisingly, Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito seemed the most skeptical. At one point, Justice Thomas said, quote, I've heard the word diversity quite a few times, and I don't have a clue what it means. It seems to mean everything for everyone. And Justice Alito uh, said that he, he answered, what does that mean when you talk about underrepresented minorities? He added that college admissions are a zero-sum game in which granting advantages to one group necessarily disadvantages another. So the question becomes, are they going? Are they going to find um, enough uh, of of their colleagues who will join them in what clearly is going to be a dissent? I would think on their part, Fred. 
Yeah, I mean, here's the reality. There are more qualified folks who apply for uh, slots at highly selective institutions than there are places, right? So uh, so you have, in fact, far more, <laughs> um, far more. Uh, and so what uh, admissions officers then are also looking to, in addition to whether someone has the academic qualifications to succeed, they're looking to things like, do we have representation for all from all 50 states? Do we have a lot of international representation? Because we know what that means uh, to the classroom learning experience. Um, are we making sure that we have a, a, a representation in the way of, of gender, et cetera? And so far, over the last uh, 40 years or so, they've also um, considered whether or not it's a racially diverse class, right? Um, and what the Supreme Court is poised to do is to conclude that it is unconstitutional um, to uh, engage in that last kind of uh, diversification. Um, the rest would remain same, the same, but uh, but intentionally racially integrating one's class would be unconstitutional. Um, and yes, there will uh, there will be uh, undoubtedly uh, a a dissent, uh, as there have been in the prior cases. And I'll say, you know, about ten years ago, um, the Supreme Court was poised to eradicate affirmative action. Uh, and according to Joan uh, Biskupic. Uh, a dissent by Justice Sotomayor was so strong <laughs> that it persuaded the court to, uh, in a consensus eight mm -hmm. to one opinion, uh, push that for another day. Uh, and so it survived mm -hmm. 11 years longer than it otherwise would have, but uh, I don't think anyone thinks that it's gonna survive uh, any more years. Jim, before I bring Anthony in to continue the conversation about the implications of this from a legal constitutional point of view, let me put it in the context of Georgia. You were a student at the University of Georgia. It was in 1961, in January of 1961, that Hamilton Holmes and Charlene Hunter desegregated, for the first time, the University of Georgia. It was met, of course, with, um, on, on one side, celebration, on the other side, uh, demonstrations against the admission of black students to the university. And I mention that today because the university that you attended was far different from what the one was in 1960 before those two came in. You were there with diverse students, and I wonder how that shaped your university experience. Well, I, I, would, I, would, I would take a little bit of an issue with that. Uh, I mean, that was, uh, you're right, January 61 was when, when it was formally inter integrated. There were riots. There was a, a huge riot. Uh, and, as a, in, in, in response, uh, uh, and it, that kind of that kind of pushed Ernie, Ernest Vandiver, Vandiver, the governor, to uh, to to back off his his no not one pledge. Uh, I started at the University about, uh, of Georgia about a dozen years later, and I think maybe maybe four or five percent of the student population was African American. Uh, Athens still has a tough time. Uh, attracting uh, attracting uh, minority students. It's not where it ought to be, given given where the state is. Uh, it is nowhere near. If 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 African Amer Americans make up uh, thirty percent of of the, the the total population, it's nowhere close to that in the student population. So it's a it's it's a it's it's it remains a work in progress. So. That surprises me. I did not realize that. Um, but you, having gone to Georgia, would get that. Um, so, Anthony, that makes a ruling. Just you take the University of Georgia example that Jim's talking about struggling 
Um, Anthony, that makes this ruling by the court uh, adds even more weight to it. I think we, as a society, will have to have a very deep uh, introspective moment about college admissions and how all this process will work out, work out going forward once the court makes its decision. Um, one of the things that we can't not talk about at some point is that one of the greatest forms of affirmative action that we have in this country is legacy admissions, which benefit yeah. those who are already privileged, um, right? That they are they are second, third, fourth generation college graduates at, at that point, so many of them. And yet they get a benefit, um, you know, that that is clearly important to their identity, right? Um, you know, if and when I ever have children, I would love my children to go to UNC or to, to UGA, right? As uh, I'm an alum of both. Um, that's an important identity marker for many families. Um, we have to ask a question, and of course, this also depends on how the court makes its decision. Why can't people who have very strong feelings about their racial identity, their religious identity, their sexual orientation, their gender identity, where they're from, the state, rural, urban, whatever. Um, why can't they express that as being important to them and having that be part of the admissions process in a way that legacy admissions have continued to, to benefit many people? And, and, and I, don't, I don't know how that's all going to play out. I don't know how the court is on the one hand going to say you can't consider race, but then also how do you, you know, stop people from from voluntarily admitting or, you know, voluntarily providing that information? How does that work? How how what what are the implications for admissions essays and the like? I mean, it's an administrative nightmare depending on how the court renders its decision. Um, and I and I think that, I, you know, on the one hand, the court is really against, um, you know, any kind of thing that 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 smells of race consciousness. On the other hand, um, you know, it's it's the the kind of dominoes that are going to fall on the, the kind of administrative uh, headaches that are going to emerge from how the court makes its decision on this case, I think are, are going to be um, very problematic for for administrators. And and again, I think there's got to be a broader social conversation to, to be had. Tanya, finish us off on this subject. Yes, I, I um, Anthony's point is well taken. And I think Justice Jackson in her questioning um, talked about how can we consider legacy as relevant to admissions, but not some of these other equally important and I would argue more important signifiers. But I also want to say that this opinion, while it will be made um, in the context of race and admissions, may in the same way that Brown did have implications beyond <laughs> colleges and universities. You know, Brown was just about K through 12, but then it ended up kind of fueling the desegregation of other spaces. And I feel like in kind of a, an inverse way, in a similar way, um, this decision will have implications for employment and, and other spaces um, where race continues to be a relevant consideration. And, and I, I think it, it really just depends on how broadly or narrowly the decision is written. But I will All predict right. it will be a long decision. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Tanya, gets the last word in this segment of Political Rewind. Back with more in just a moment. Jim Galloway, you just sent us a note Do very quickly because it relates to the last segment in affirmative action. Just give us a real quick summary of what you 
the data you've pulled on degrees in, in universities in Georgia. Yeah, yeah, and this is this is uh, this is uh, I think uh, is of 2020. Uh, uh, the student population uh, at the University of Georgia was 67 percent white, 9.5 uh, percent Asian, 8.2 percent black or African American, and then uh, then Hispanics and uh, Hispanic in, or Latino. So uh, it it's still it, it, it's still a a, a uh, a, a dominated very much by 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 uh, white demographics here. What I've loved about being able to host this show over the last nine years is how much I learn. <laughs> In addition to what I know, all of you out there as listeners tell me you learn about it too. Thank you, uh, Jim Galloway. I did not realize that was the situation at Georgia. All right, Anthony. Another big case that we're waiting for is basically we're frame. It can frame it as. The, the rights of LGBTQ individuals as opposed to free speech. It's a case that uh, comes out of Littleton, Colorado, where a woman who is a web designer has made it clear she does not want to uh, 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 do her work for LGBTQ couples who are coming to her to do websites uh, for their upcoming uh, weddings. And we don't have any clue, do we, as to how the court might rule on which is dominant, free speech or the rights of, of uh, LGBTQ people? The tea leaf uh, reading is, is always hard to do, but it's easier as the court starts to issue its very last opinions. Um, if, if we're looking at the, the kind of case assignments and when the decision or when the, the cases were heard um, in oral argument, most court watchers, myself included, seem to believe that Justice Gorsuch uh, is the most likely candidate to have a majority, the majority opinion here, um, in which case it is incredibly dim uh, news for LGBTQ advocates um, who are very worried about how this case might get decided. Ultimately, the court will have to decide um, you know, whether or not this, this uh, public accommodations law applied in this way. And again, and I, I do want to note that nobody asked this particular plaintiff um, to actually violate her, her free speech uh, rights. Uh, this is this is all kind of a, a manufactured crisis from my personal perspective. Um, but the court will have to decide whether or not um, at the application of Colorado's public accommodation law in such a way um, would would violate her free speech rights. Um, and and I I think that there's a there's a the, the real question here is not so much what the outcome is going to be, but but what the contours of the actual decision are, because it can be very broad and sweeping. It can be very narrow. Um, we've seen in cases before, like in the, uh, the case out of Philadelphia about uh, adoption law. Um, or adoption uh, regulations, and we've seen it before in the Masterpiece Cake Shop uh, case, which was a which was a religious claim, not a free speech claim. But we've seen before in these instances where these these different interests clash that the court has kind of backed away from very broad sweeping decisions and has made very narrow ones. So um, I, I think that's the real question for me is the the scope and not so much the outcome. I think she's going to to ultimately win this case. Well, Fred, I, I mean, he, you know, uh, Anthony mentions the Masterpiece case, and um, uh, it's interesting because in that case where the baker refused to bake a wedding cake for uh, a gay couple, also out of Colorado, the court didn't rule in a broad enough way to eliminate this issue that's now before them 
in this case, which, as uh, Anthony points out, is about free speech, not that Baker's religious uh, convictions. Yeah, so in the Masterpiece case, uh, what the court said was that the decision makers, the people who find uh, the Baker, acted with religious animosity. Um, and here, no one has acted against this web designer. No one even asked her to design a website. She preemptively went to court. So there's the, the facts are different. So there's no one to say uh, to, to look to and say they were violating my religious rights because she didn't even she wasn't even asked to make a uh, to make a, a website in the first place. Um, and so uh, so yes, yeah, so this then is a, a case about free speech. She says that she doesn't want to be compelled uh, to uh, to design a website. Um, I guess so. A lot, of, a lot will be de depend factually on what again, as Anthony said, on what they precisely say. Is this a, uh, is this a web? How much do they say about the level of creative uh, um, art that goes into her designing the website? Um, and how much will this then apply instead to put things that are what they call plug and play, where you just type in, "This is my name. This is my." whatever, and then it spits out a website. Uh, anyone who's gotten married recently <laughs> has used one of these websites, R uh, RSVP, FI, and the like. You just plug it in, right? Um, and, and we certainly don't want an opinion that says that you can just plug it in and it spits back. That sounds like a male name, and that sounds like a male name. Uh, you can't do this. This is like, um, so, uh, so, so a lot depends on exactly what they say. Uh, and we will know either in an hour <laughs> or uh, or tomorrow at about 10.30. Um, we'll, we'll have a better sense of just how broadly they're choosing a rule. Jim, I know you want to jump back in, and then Tanya, I want to get your take on this. Uh, yeah, actually, I, I, just a, a question for, for Tanya or, or Fred or for Anthony. Uh, how common is it for, for a case to get to the Supreme Court where there is no harm done to, to, to the plaintiff? Uh, that that the that the that the harm is, is that the, the that that the case is theoretical. That's that sounds that sounds rather British to me. Ta Tanya I, does raise Anthony, the question of standing. Uh, All right. Yeah, Anthony. I'm going to let Anthony give a more specific answer, but my short answer is more often than than they should. <laughs> well. Even the, the so the decision the other day from the on the independent state legislature doctrine. I mean, in theory. Um, nobody was really nobody had a case or controversy um, at mm -hmm. issue because the North Carolina Supreme Court had reversed the decision that got it to the Supreme Court in the first place. Um, now, normally the court should kick that out, um, but but you know the court here said oh, no uh, no no we're going to go forward with this anyway. So I'm not really you know it certainly happens more often than you know in theory it should happen, but it, it certainly does happen. Mm -hmm. Tanya, we're we're, we're I, a little short on time. Well, go ahead, go ahead, Tanya. I I just wanted to say that um you know this question just raises the this case raises the broader question whether you can call your speech non-discriminatory just by asserting that it is protected by the First Amendment even if it has an adverse and discriminatory uh, effect on in this case uh, LGBTQ folks and communities. Tanya, um, one of the other cases we're waiting for a decision on is whether President Biden has the right to relieve us, uh, students of their loan debt or whether he overstepped his boundaries on that. What's your sense of why is that case? Uh, uh, well, I know why it's important to all the students <laughs> with loan debt, but what, what are the basic uh, questions in that case? 
Well, students are waiting with bated breath because the loans will resume um, their uh, due date, at, I, I believe, in, as of September. Um, but I'm going to kick uh, the description of, of the case to my colleagues, um, Anthony and Fred, for a fuller description. Fred? Well, under the HEROES Act, uh, the Department of Education has the ability to, quote, modify or waive um, student loan rules. Uh, and so the question is whether or not the, the decision uh, that they made in this particular case um, to pause student loans, whether or not that falls within uh, that language. Uh, it may run into this uh, doctrine that the court created a few years ago called the major questions doctrine, where anything that's a major question, uh, this, the Congress has to endorse with specificity. It's a brand new rule, and we don't know exactly how it's going to play out. Jim, uh, this is one of the biggest political matters that President Biden has weighed in on. He made it a campaign promise long ago. He finally pulled the trigger, and he's been met with enormous pushback, political pushback, certainly from Republicans. And now, of course, the courts will decide the matter. Right, right. And it's, it's uh, you have to wonder, I, part of me wonders whether Biden uh, announced this policy with the knowledge that this might happen. Uh, but he had to push put the idea out there anyway in any case i mean uh, th this is this is extremely important to people who have been told yes. time and time again that college is the is is the ticket to success in america and yet uh states are not paying for it anymore yeah anthony as we run out of time i really want to get your take on this well, the, the, the threshold issue in this case, too, is, is this standing question, right? Who is actually harmed by the forgiveness of these loans? Um, do the states that some of them hold these, these loan servicing companies, are they injured? There's a number of folks who had loans forgiven that claim that they've been injured because now they'll be taxed on the forgiveness, um, although they could technically decline uh, the, the forgiveness. So that's the threshold question. But I, I also think, once again, that this goes back to a bigger question. Yes, these loans are are deeply problematic. Yes, I think forgiveness personally is 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 a great thing, and and more should be done. But the costs of higher ed are just tremendous because, in part, the states have have just refused to fund it in the way that they used to, and we really need to get back to that. All right, um, Anthony Michael Christ gets the final word in today's uh, political rewind. I loved having a panel of uh, law professors uh, today, Anthony. Thank you. Fred Smith, your long service to this show has been really uh, a wonderful thing. And Tanya Washington, it's a great pleasure to have you as well. Jim Galloway, we will meet again somewhere to talk about politics. I'm sure of it, my friend. In the meantime, uh, this is it. We're tomorrow. Final political rewind before we close the doors and move on. And Natalie Mendenhall, Chase McGee, uh, Victoria Evans-Cash, and Buddha are all looking forward uh, to that show tomorrow. So come on, watch, listen with us as we say goodbye here at GPB. That's it for us today. Um, back again, as I said, tomorrow. Until then, take care, stay healthy, and yes, be good to one another. Bye, everybody.